Looking for the latest perspectives to help simplify changing market conditions? Go to Nationwide, one of America's largest financial services companies. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. We're thrilled to bring you the chairman of Evercore ISI, Ed Hyman, joins us for a mid-year update. I want to do a little history here. John's got like six serious questions. I'm calling the October bottom the Ralph Ancapora, Edward Yardeni bottom. Many other people were out there as optimistic, but Ed Yardeni absolutely nailed the bottom. You basically gave him his job. You were at C.J. Lawrence a million years ago. I read your research worshipfully. And you went out the door to set up your own shop, and Yardeni replaced you. Is that true? So I had a deal with uh, my boss then, Jim Moltz, who ran the firm, uh, that I wouldn't leave until we got a replacement. And so Jim came in and said, Ed, you can leave. (laughs) I said, oh. The inbred optimism that Ed Hyman has and Ed Yardeni has, what does the gloom crew get wrong here about the need to understand America will persevere? So I think we're going to have a recession. And I follow Ed Yardeni closely. And I just read his piece uh, over the weekend where he doesn't have a recession. And I've been through this more times than anybody on your show. The yield curve works. And the yield curve is really inverted. And then if that doesn't do it, you have a contraction in the money supply, the most since the 1930s. And then you have a significant increase in rates plus QT. And so Mike Tyson could get you with any one of those, much less (laughs) he's got three shots. And so uh, I just have to add that uh, from when the yield curve inverts, it can take 18 months for the economy to go into recession. And just before it goes into recession, it looks great. It's, it's a very humbling business. And Tom, I got to say, I have not been forecasting a recession for the past year. I fought last year the two down quarters like crazy. And I have the uh, third quarter down, which seems too aggressive. Uh, but I'm pretty flexible, but I'm sure it's coming. Does this have a pre-08 feel to it? In that regard, not really. Uh, just except for the yield curve, but the, the well, that's 08, what I meant specifically. Oh, oh for, for sure yeah. on that, uh, and it's playing out pretty much like that. But you don't have the housing bubble. You don't have something that would cause a severe recession, like we had in oh eight oh nine. Where are you on the inflation backdrop at the moment? We had a guest in the last hour or so who suggested that inflation expectations are bottoming, 
here, bottoming for the cycle, that ultimately inflation is going to be sticky and a recession won't address it. Yeah, so I'm, I'm on the other side, big time. So I just looked before I came over here at uh, gasoline prices, which have a big influence on inflation expectations. Inflation expectations have come down significantly, uh, but they also are influenced by gasoline prices. And the futures uh, have gasoline prices going down another 10 cents in the next six weeks. Not a big move, but not up 20 cents. Uh, and gasoline prices are where they were 15 years ago. Uh, so inflation is, is coming down around the world. Uh, they just reported this morning the PPI for the Eurozone was now in deflation, minus 1.5%, which you reported. And then last week, the Spain CPI went below 2% for the first time. Uh, so I try and connect the dots the best I can. Uh, and it looks to me as though inflation is really going down. And with that policy backdrop I mentioned, it's going to keep going down. Well, let's build on that. So we've got you on growth, got you on inflation, build on the policy backdrop. Most people anticipating now the Fed goes again this month, right. maybe goes again after that. Where are you and the team now? So uh, Krishna Guha does our Fed work. He has one more and done. And so that's what I would follow. Uh, at this point, the one more is baked in the cake. Uh, I think anything from now is a mistake. They're just creating a deeper recession uh, or the more uh, likelihood of a recession. Uh, but, um, at, you know, five and a quarter uh, with the bond yield at uh, 380, uh, they're pretty much done and inflation slowing. The Fed hiked rates in uh, March of 2022. And at that point, inflation had already gone crazy. <laughs> and they were still doing the transitory. And then they were still they, doing QE. <laughs> they were still doing QE. <laughs> and so, and as I can tell, by the time they. By the time they cut rates, inflation will be so far down, it'll make them look uh, a little wrong-footed over, over again. Over the years, you've been, you've been considered for a Fed president, certainly as a Fed governor and as well. Ed, what did this Fed get wrong? Was it too much communication? Were we advantaged with the silence of Greenspan? Um, I think it's very difficult to have 300 PhDs make a forecast. Not uh, buttering you up, Tom, but I'd rather have you make that forecast than 300 PhDs. Yeah, Mike, Mike said I can't do that. <laughs> Mike, you know, Mike walked in one day and said, Tom, I don't need any forecasts on air. Continue. And so I think it's just, it's just part of the uh, stickiness of the decision-making. It's by committee. It's by committee. And I also tend to try and always go where the puck is going to put it in your terms. And boy, the evidence, okay. the evidence that things are slowing on inflation is really pretty awesome. We're going to have you back, but you hired Gretzky. How's Julian Emanuel doing? To me, like his, his, <laughs> his weekly note during earnings season is the most valuable thing that comes yeah. over the transom. And what I want to say is this guy captured the equity market lift, maybe not all tech tech. He didn't tell you to buy NVIDIA, but is Julian Emanuel doing okay over at the He's shop? He's doing great. So we have an open office. I learned from Mike Bloomberg. So I have a desk. Then I have Rich Ross, and then I have Julian Emanuel. And we're within 
I wouldn't say shouting distance, where they're in talking distance. Is he talking about a second leg of the bull market, like Ed Hyman nailed? Got to be quick here, but second leg of the bull market, I was 76. He's just cautious, cautiously up. Very cautiously you know, they, up. They separate Tom and I in the office. Do you know that? <clears throat> I didn't know so that. So that we're not allowed to sit next to each other. Ed Hyman, I want you to talk about the hallmark of your work back to C.J. Lawrence, and that's the granularity of studying data. Does the granularity of freight rates... This, that, the Greenspanian data study still work in a modern high-tech age. Works even better. Why? Because there is so much high-quality data now, you know, generated by computers. And so I really think that my success in studying the economy and forecasting comes from being more granular. So the Fed seems to look at one data point that comes out, like the super core, and I've looked at maybe 20 at that point. And like what Michael was talking about uh, on the employment number, there's a lot of data points, and they're generally pretty darn strong for employment. So we're estimating 220. Uh, Alan Zentner, I think, is terrific, uh, but I don't see that sub-100 number uh, or a really low number in the data that we get so far, like unemployment claims, or we survey uh, em employment agencies once a week. I look at the data, and to me, the hallmark here across the decades is we used to aggregate off the revolution of 1947, the way we bring in macro data. Do you at Evercore ISI still aggregate, or are you partitioning out now for different quintiles, deciles, or John Edwards to Americas? Can you aggregate still? Uh, yes, but you have to take into account the different pieces. And right now, the manufacturing sector is pretty weak, uh, maybe in recession, and many other parts of the economy are doing quite well. Mm -hmm. Services, like over the holiday July 4th, and uh, you also have home building is now actually coming back. It's been very strong and uh, has accelerated in the past couple of months. Right. You took a Kufalanasser slide rule from Texas to MIT. I don't know if you studied <laughs> with, with Solo there after 57 productivity, but explain the Evercore ISI view on America's productivity given the new technology overlay. Are you an optimist or not? Uh, I'm an optimist, but it's not in the numbers. Uh, one of the phrases is productivity is everywhere but in the numbers. But uh, you know what, what you do has enormous productivity. And what I do, frankly, has enormous productivity. Uh, but it's, but we're not getting it, period, right now in the numbers. Employment's good, uh, but the economy is still slowing, I think. What do you think about the frenzy gloom crew, particularly they come out every Friday? Friday seems to, you know, you publish for the weekend and, and, and that. But, the, the, I mean, we've always worried back, I mean, think of 87 or the, August of 1998. The worry, the angst has always been there, but there seems to be a different character to the gloom now. How do you respond to that? So the forecast for recession was virtually unanimous a few months ago. And now there are many people going to a non-recession forecast. Uh, I am the most bearish I've ever been on the economy without being in a recession. And it's because of the yield curve, the contraction of money, uh, and QT at the same time they're hiking rates. That three uh, blow hit to the economy uh, is going to cause a recession, but it doesn't right. happen overnight. So and can you own stocks given the statement you just made that you're the most gloomy you've ever been? 
Are you all in cash, or can you own no, so, equities and participate? So uh, I mentioned, uh, I think, three times now, the uh, 06, 07, going into 08. And the S&P went up 20 percent uh, and peaked like two months before the Great Recession hit. Mm -hmm. Boy, is it tough. Uh, and so right now, I think the economy uh, is doing well. And the stock market is going up. The technicals are good. And so I think we'll keep going up until it looks like we're about to hit the recession. Mm -hmm. And that's not today. I got two minutes left. You're the only one who hasn't moved to Florida. You are part of the New York City fabric. Explain how you view the future of this great city. It's very tough because uh, so many people are moving to Florida. But... Uh, this city is so vibrant. Uh, just being here with you, which I know you love the city and all the institutions in it. Never bet against New York. <laughs> That's the only reason I got this job. <laughs> I said that to the mayor at the time. He said, you're hired. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, as long as Mike Bloomberg is here, right. I, I think we're here. Okay, what are we going to do with the Fed? One final question. What's the Fed, uh, Ed Hyman Fed strategy here forward? Uh, so they're going to hike one more and then they're done. When do they cut? Uh, probably, you know, I think toward the end of this year, but maybe early ne next year. But uh, I can I can look down the street. I can't see around the corner. But mm -hmm. when I get to the corner, uh, you'll have a much better idea. That's the smoke from Canada. That's right. <laughs> you can't see. Ed Hyman, thank you so much. I know you've got uh -huh. a, a run here. He is with Evercore ISI and truly iconic on the street. Today in your equity belief, we're going to bring it over to the fixed income space. Tom Sesoris Jones is now head of fixed income research at Strategus. It is a Baird company. You have the huge advantage, Tom, of working with one Jay Trenert, who does beautiful quality stock, free cash flow, persistency of profit analysis. Did it with Ed Hyman, who will join us here later. You guys own the high ground on the linkage of equity analysis into your bond analysis. What does your bond analysis say about a second leg of a bull market? Uh, highly <clears throat> unlikely. Uh, and with that said, we recognize that the equity market seems to disagree with that hypothesis. But when we look at that inverted yield curve, what we see is <clears throat> a market, an economy, which has already f is already facing excessive tightening from the Federal Reserve. That is, the Federal Reserve has already tightened to the point where Main Street is feeling the pinch. But when you see, as you mentioned earlier, financial conditions easing, what you also see is a financial market where the Fed has not tightened enough on Wall Street. So one of the ways we phrase this is when you use the Fed funds rate to tighten, you put most of the pain on Main Street. When you use the balance sheet to tighten, you put most of the pain on Wall Street. The Fed has not tightened enough on Wall Street <coughs> by using the balance sheet to reduce liquidity in the financial system. They've already right. tightened excessively on Main Street. So a recession still seems inevitable to us in the second half of the year, and that has got to impact earnings on the equity side. Is a thermometer, I'm going to look at the inflation-adjusted 10-year yield. There's other metrics as well that a sophisticated like the source uses, but I'm going to look at the 10-year real yield at 1.58%. Uh, Maybe it was 1.62, getting a little lofty. Do you anticipate that that will break out to a higher real yield? And what level is normal 
of a higher real yield? Well, a normal might be, and keep in mind, we only have about 25 years of actual data on yeah, real yields. Yeah, like yesterday. So back to the tips market of 97, 98, normal might be 150 basis points. So we're roughly at what you might expect to be a normal real yield on 10-year treasuries. Interesting. Now, with that said, we do not necessarily expect 10-year real yields to rise much from here because we expect inflation expectations or, get, or inflation itself is getting close to bottoming this cycle. We think it's going to be very difficult for the Fed to get inflation below 3%, and we've already right. gotten expectations yeah. below 3 And the, the headline there, John, is on the edge of Bianco. I mean, this is the second time in 48 hours that I've phrase heard this. That phrase I almost thought you misspoke. You think inflation expectations are bottoming for this cycle. Yes, and, and that's because we buy into the hypothesis that inflation is going to remain sticky and that the Fed does not have the stomach to do what it takes to permanently bring the structural inflation back to a neutral. By that, we mean do excessive damage to the labor market, bring aggregate demand well below potential. That's what's required, and that's a pretty deep recession. We don't think the Fed has the appetite to do that. You don't buy into the Volcaresque delivery of Chairman Powell in late August last year? No, I don't. Um, if they were serious about bringing inflation in line with long-run uh, targets, they would have reduced the balance sheet at probably three times the pace they're going at So right just to now. be clear, on the balance sheet call, you think they <coughs> should be more aggressive with QT? You don't think they will be? Oh, absolutely. It, exactly. Both to the, uh, yes to both of those. Uh, we think they should have been more aggressive, but we think they will not be. I'm fascinated by this. Jim Bianco out in Chicago, and you guys have a call of a dis-disinflation. We're going to disinflate, come down, yep. and then at 3%, what do we do? Reverse and go up how much? What's that model show? Well, right now we're expecting a bottom around 3%. Yeah. We'll call it year-over-year -year headline CPI. On a quarter-over-quarter -quarter basis, we might see inflation dip below 3% fairly easily. But you start to see around 3%, the Fed gets weak knees. You start to see that the labor market is getting to a point where to bring inflation down much lower, you got to do substantial amounts of damage because all of a sudden businesses are no longer hoarding staff. They're laying off staff they do need, and that's demand destruction. And that's a bigger recession ahead of 2024 that the Fed probably but doesn't again, want. But again, to bring it over to Jason Trenert's work, if I have a sustained 3%, which is your minimum call, maybe actually higher that gives me a nominal GDP that's extraordinary. Does that support well-run companies in America? Well, that supports companies that have low borrowing costs. That supports companies that have bargaining power or pricing power in their industry and strong management and have basically uh, barriers to entry as well. It doesn't support companies. That, that describes John Ford stocks and, out of 500. And we'll look at the Russell uh, 2000. 45% of the companies in the Russell 2000 don't fit that. They're the exact opposite. Okay. These are big calls. If you're expecting inflation expectations to bottom out, where does that leave fixed income? For people sitting in the 10-year right now, taking on a bit more duration, what are you telling them? Well, right now, let's say 10-year treasury at 385. That actually looks attractive to us in a environment where the U.S. economy goes into recession, real yields come down, inflation expectations really don't move much, they might even go up. You still have downside in 10-year Treasury yield up down to maybe a 3% to 3.25%. But let's put that in perspective. The average recession sees a 10-year Treasury drop 225 to 250 basis points. That's probably not going to happen this cycle. At most, we're looking at that 10-year going from 430, where it peaked last year, maybe down to a 320 to 3%. This is really important stuff. What we're discussing here is ultimately how the bond market's going to behave in what you've described, and I'll, I'll put a name on it, in a stagflationary world. Yep. Is that correct? 
Yes, exactly. And and now, again, we're looking at positive total return in a 10-year treasury. We'll call it a 7% total return upside when yields drop. And if you're levered three times like many funds are, that's a 20% return that offsets maybe a 25 to 30% loss on the equity side. But the thing is, you're not looking at a 50% return in treasuries. You're looking at a, tw- a 6%, 7% levered up to 20%. Amazing sum. Just amazing. I, 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 I really can't say enough. You know, we're making jokes about it, folks. We're into the summer. We're getting lazy and sloppy like everybody else. It's an incredibly holiday-shortened week. We're compressing three days, John, of serious economic analysis. And I got two competent shops, Bianco and Strategus, saying the same thing, that we're going to dis... I, I'm making this word up. Dis-disinflate. Well, that line, That's all brand new. That phrase, just this idea that inflation expectations are bottoming out for the cycle. That is not what this Federal Reserve, Tom, wants to hear. At all. At all. No. So 25 in July is what most people anticipate. Some people say maybe another 25. The committee suggesting that might be the direction of travel. And then you think they're done as well? I think so. And, And let's keep this in mind. The higher they go with the Fed funds rate, the more likely they are to reach their target of 2% inflation. But we just don't think that they have the stomach to keep doing this. There's going to be demand destruction. And you got to also look at the second half of the year. The two stories in the second half of the year, obviously, recession risk is one of them. The other one is you're looking at massive liquidity drain from the Treasury raising cash and adding back to its Treasury general account. And you're looking at the Fed continuing to reduce its balance sheet, albeit at a very slow pace. So if the Fed were to go to, let's say, a 6% Fed funds rate, of course, the chances of them bringing inflation down are much higher. But I don't see them doing that because there's already liquidity drag or liquidity drain coming in the second half. Well, you're calling recession anyway. Yep. And a recession that comes without rate cuts? For now, yes, because I do think where the Fed will be sticky, and and keep in mind, I don't think the Fed is going to go to 6% Fed funds rate, but I do think they're going to hold the funds rate at whatever they terminate, five and a quarter, five and a half, whatever it is, they're going to hold it there for as long as possible. And then they're going to cut. So that means now we're looking at those first cuts probably coming in February of next year. The world you describe, so stagflation, a Fed that's not willing to crush inflation, ultimately might start cutting next year. Sounds pretty dreadful. For risk assets, doesn't it? It, Recession as well, all these calls that you've got. It absolutely does. Uh, And I think the silver lining here is that eventually they do cut. And because you're looking at an economy that is still relatively balanced for the most part at this point, you're not looking at extreme excesses in housing, in energy investment. Your recession is shallow. And there should be more of a V-shaped bounce off of it once we reach that trough. Well, how'd you get the V if it's shallow? Just to build on that, just finally. Because you do get a Fed that does eventually cut aggressively in 2024 okay. or 2025. And this is one of those conversations that later on today I'm going to replay and listen back to. This was great. Tom Tesouris there, a strategist. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. 
It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. With us around the table, David Leibovitz, Global Market Strategist at JP Morgan Asset Management. David, wonderful to catch up with you, sir, post-July 4th, and I hope you had a wonderful holiday. Let's start there. You missed it. What do you do now? So I, I think what's interesting is that we, we all missed it. You know, people came into this year with a view that, okay, maybe you get a little bit of a bounce because 2022 was so bad but certainly not 15% on the S&P in, in the first half of the year. And so I, I think what you do is, is you actually don't do all that much because what we don't want people to do is to begin chasing this rally. You know, we do see some storm clouds on the horizon. We do think that the risk of recession has risen. I do think that the Fed is going to continue hiking rates. Yes, we've had a very good run in risk assets, but, but I wouldn't chase this rally too much. I would stick to your plan, stick to your asset allocation rather than moving things around one way or the other. I'll get that, but you have to identify a second leg of market. Is J.P. Morgan allowed, with all your economic work, Kazan Faroli, to say we have the underpinning of what can be a legitimate broadening out bull market? So I guess there, there are two things that give me pause about that, that possibility of broadening out from a bull market perspective. The first is that the majority, the entirety, effectively, of the rally that we've seen year to date has been driven by multiple expansion. Right, So earnings Correct. growth hasn't really participated. And so what we need to see in order to remain constructive on risk assets here is evidence that you know the, the potential downside on earnings is potentially not as bad as what a lot of people would expect. If we do hit a slower patch in the economy, potentially a recession, I think you're looking at earnings estimates, which are signaling that profits yeah, will continue to rise. And to <clears> me, that's a tough pill to swallow. In the real world of sitting around, and the, when the, you know, we celebrate that the colonies won, and we're sitting around and we're having mustard, not ketchup on our hot dogs. And and there's one guy there livid at a given institution, let's pick on J.P. Morgan, and saying, okay, what's the plan to catch up? What's the J.P. Morgan plan to catch up if I was above average, but nothing like what NVIDIA did? So I, I think the, the best thing that people can do today is try to preserve their optionality. And we, we would encourage two ways of doing that. First would be by not forgetting about fixed income, right? You know, we talked about how sitting in cash feels comfortable, and obviously you're getting paid from the bond market once again. We still think that that optionality, maintaining a relatively short duration, could work in your favor. Because if you get a big pullback in equities, you're going to be able to deploy that capital and, and try to catch up to, to your question. The other thing is we would maintain that shorter duration on the equity side as well. Focus on the dividend payers. Focus on the high cash flow companies. Again, there's a lot of excitement and a lot of enthusiasm about things like artificial intelligence. And I do think that it'll boost productivity over the longer term, but I'm not sure it's going to boost productivity tomorrow. And I'm not sure it means that we're going to avoid some sort of soft patch in the economy over the course of the next 12 months. So this all feels very sentiment driven. That's why we're fo so focused on profits and the optionality that those cash flows can provide. NVIDIA is making money. 
Meta's making money. Where does tech fit into that, just to build on that a little bit more? No, and we talked about this a couple of months ago. What was really interesting about watching tech into the end of 2022 and the beginning of this year is that they've been taking their medicine, right? They've been laying people off. They've been defending that margin. They don't necessarily have the type of pricing power that you're seeing from, say, the airlines in the current environment. And so you're actually seeing tech margins hang in there. And I think that that does limit the downside to the market if we do hit a slow patch or a recession in the economy. But you know, my general take is that even if if inflation is still above the Fed's target and real growth is slowing, tough to see how earnings in aggregate continue to expand. Just going through the top 10 on the S&P 500 year to date, NVIDIA, we all know that name, Meta. Then you've got these cruise operators, Carnival up by 135%, Royal Caribbean up 109%, year to date, Norwegian up 79%. There's a home builder in there, up by close to 70%. What's all that about? So I think that this this is the big question, and I think this is part of why so many people have gotten the, the market wrong this year. It feels like we're seeing these rolling recessions in the economy, where first it was the cyclical parts, the rate-sensitive parts like housing. Obviously, you had services shut down during the pandemic, and things have continued to bounce there quite nicely. The, the, the path to a soft landing here is that everything fails to roll over at the same time, and we just see these little kind of mini explosions and mini soft patches, which isn't completely unfeasible, but I think what you're seeing in terms of the top performers outside of the tech names, <clears throat> services. People are still out there spending money. They're still going on. On vacation. I was in Orlando the other week. The airport was full. You look at home builders, right? When it comes to mortgage rates, it's the big move that puts things on ice. Now people look at the numbers and they say, well, the house is more expensive, rates are more expensive, but I don't think that they're necessarily going to continue to rise. And so you're beginning to see that stabilization in those parts of the economy. And I think that that's why people continue to gravitate to the soft landing thesis, although it seems like a bit of a stretch. Where do for bonds us. fit in? So I think that bonds. For us, the shorter end of the curve continues to look most attractive. You're, you're not getting paid to go all the way out. I think selectively adding duration when you get a 10-year that edges up towards 4% makes a lot of sense because over 12 months, right, if rates end right. up falling, that's going to work in your favor. The zeitgeist this weekend, John, while you were away, was simple. People are stunned at how retail and particularly older retail is all in stocks. The lessons we learned, CFA kind of chit-chat, it's been thrown out the window by a public just buying and buying and buying stocks. So it's let's amazing. talk about something that's going to come up a lot. You'll hear people on programs like this talking about triple-digit inversion, two-year, 10-year, negative 105 basis points. For a lot of people listening, and they've heard this a million times, the curve's inverted. That's dangerous. That's bad, isn't it? What does that mean, negative 105 so that's close to as inverted as the curve has, has 80s, ever been. Right? right? We have to go all the way back to the 80s. And, you know, again, you, you think about history and it doesn't always repeat itself, but it does tend to rhyme. And I think what the yield curve is telling us is, is something that, you know, a lot of people, I think, know in the back of their minds, but but hesitate to really wrap their arms about is that squeezing the last little bit of water out of this inflation sponge is probably going to be more difficult than a lot of people expect. And it's arguably going to require a recession. And I think that that's what the yield curve is saying. It said the Fed has recognized that if they want to prioritize controlling prices, they're going to need to potentially crash the plane. And I think that that's why you're seeing the curve as inverted as it is. Just today. to finish on that then, David, yeah. does that imply this Fed has to sit at 550 for a longer time than people expect? Or does that imply that this Fed needs to go higher than 550 and maybe even closer to 6%? So I think that the risk to rates is, is still to the upside. Um, obviously, my boss's boss thinks that 6% is, uh, is potentially in, in play. <laughs> um, it wouldn't surprise me, but I think at a minimum, what investors need to be prepared for is the Fed going to somewhere around 550 and then not 
not blinking until the labor market deteriorates in a way that they can no longer ignore it, right? 3.7% on unemployment is not going to catch well, the Fed's wait, attention. Wait, wait, wait. Four and a half will. It's, David, it's a slow news day. Uh, can, can you state that Mr. Diamond's looking for a 6% level <laughs> in Fed funds rate? He came out and said that. He came out and said that. He, he said, said that he, he thought said we were going to six. That's not, you know, that's yeah. not news. You're trying to get him in trouble. I, I don't know. <laughs> David writes his annual letter. You know, it's like a 58-page oh, le- letter. David's writing that for Jamie. They call up Leibowitz and they, they go, come on, write this thing for us. And David, would you like a final word on that? Well, I think what's interesting is that it wasn't too long ago that people were highly skeptical that we were going to five. Right. And this is a Fed that has taken the inflation problem personally. They've already made one policy error. Right, they started right. too late. I don't think that they're going to make another by quitting too early. How many days a week are you in the early. office? We're in the office five days a week. Five days a week. Are you going <laughs> to get a view of Park Avenue in Grand and in, in uh, uh, you know the down at the end of Park there, Pan Am Building, or are you going to be looking out over New Jersey in, in the Hudson River? Where, how do we fit that in right now? I, I think time will tell. I heard it's uh, how good I am at calling the Fed is going to determine where where my new seat is. Six percent Fed. Leavitt's got a star <laughs> office view. David, thank you. It's David, good to see, you. see you. Guys. Thank you very great. much, David Leavitt's there of JP. Morgan Asset Management. This is really a special treat here. I was hugely influenced years ago in reading, I'll say, five books on the kingdom of Saudi Arabia and all the romance back to 75 millimeter Lawrence of Arabia a million years ago of this experiment that is the Saudi family. Ellen Wald is definitive on this. We usually talk to her about the major revenue maker, which is oil maybe a Ramco at Formula One, but today we digress. And with Ellen Wald, we speak of this royal family and what they're doing to global sports. Ellen, are you surprised that the Saudis want to acquire entertainment prestige? No, I'm not. Uh, I think that this really goes along very well with their uh, kind of general search for global prestige, especially uh, in terms of the West. And, you know, they're not really getting it from oil anymore. Um, Yes, they still are providing this incredibly vital resources, as you just mentioned, to the world. But um, it doesn't necessarily come with prestige. In fact, it comes with a bit of uh, the the opposite, given uh, how prominent the the climate issues are today and and how prominent they are in in discussion. Uh, You even saw the OPEC Secretary General making reference to the fact that, uh, of course, we want an emissions-free future. Well, really? Aren't you guys a bunch of oil producers? So so I think that they are uh, searching for other avenues to acquire prestige and that generally for right. the Saudis involves throwing money at it. My amateur take on this off Lacey and off your work is the basic idea that these are tribal clans, tribal families, whether it's United Arab Emirates, Kuwait, the originality of the experiment in Jordan, etc. Give us an update on the power structure of the royal family in Saudi Arabia. Does it harken back to Faisal or is it something new? So uh, I think it's kind of a, a combination of both in in effect, because um, the Saudis have always looked for ways to show their prestige. And so way back when you had, uh, you know, Abdulaziz Ibn Saud, he would basically, uh, you know, before he had oil, 
his way of showing his kind of rule and, and affirming his rule over uh, the various tribes in Saudi Arabia was to go around and basically promise uh, them stuff. So people would show up and they'd ask for things and he promised them. And then they'd have to show up at his, uh, you know, treasurer and the treasurer would have to dole out the money. And, and you know, before oil, there wasn't that much money. So uh, as soon as it was gone, he'd kind of pack up and slink away. Um, but still the Saudi king would kind of keep promising things. Well, now they've got tons of oil and tons of money. And so they're promising things, you know, in terms of, of going out and trying to acquire big time footballers or uh, do this deal with PGA, which is essentially going to allow them to kind of bankroll this um, commercial entity uh, for for golf around the world. And it's basically a way of ensuring that people don't say bad things about them, but also <laughs> ensuring to their people, hey, look, we're doing all this great stuff and, um, you know, we're behind it and, and we're we're funding it. And none of this is new as as you've illustrated that China tried to do this with football. It wasn't very successful. Russia's tried to do this in a various ways to use sport as a vehicle to basically achieve certain goals, whether it be the Winter Olympics, a Formula One race, World Cup for football. And I want to understand from your perspective, what would success look like for the Saudis? What does that actually look like? That's a good question. I think success is it partially it's it's winning. So uh, their sports teams have to do well. I mean, remember, there was a whole big controversy about the Saudis trying to acquire uh, a football club in uh, in England, and then they they didn't get the one that they wanted. So they got a lesser one. So they've got to do well, but they've also got to kind of make money out of it. So even if they don't win, it's not so much about winning. It's more about, you know, being on TV and getting that prestige and people kind of showing them deference. Uh, you know, they're big time people get invited to all the big events and they show them on camera and they, you know, say good things about them and nobody says anything bad about them. So this is a way of kind of ensuring, oh, that Khashoggi thing uh, that happened back there, you know, no one, no one remembers that because now we've got, you know, Rumayan at, at, you know, the center of the PGA golf tournament and, and you know, MBS can show up to whatever football game he wants and, uh, you know, they'll show him on camera and, and say, you know, if not good things, at least they won't say bad things. Are you expecting the West to close their door to this? Well, I do think that there's going to be pushback, but money is a really powerful uh, motivator. And it's very hard to say no when, uh, you know, there's a deep pocket here. I mean, look at look at PGA. And, um, you know, as long as there isn't any kind of major human rights issue that pops up, um, of course, I do think that that kind of thing is inevitable. There will be another big human rights issue right. that comes up. And uh, the issue will be, will these leagues be able to say, no, we don't want your money anymore? Or will they say, oh, well, we do want your money. We just want you right. to be quiet. Ellen, you're away from what Ed Morris does, Jeff Curry, and the rest of the bandits in hydrocarbon analysis. What's your price barrel of oil that you think the royal family needs in Saudi Arabia? Do you have a Brent crude price that gets it done for them? I think that anything above, you know, 60, 65 is getting it done for them. They don't need to cover their budget with the price of oil. So I know the IMF says, you know, oh, they need 80 or $85 oil to cover their budget. That's not how the Saudis are thinking. They don't, they don't need to cover their budget with oil. They can, uh, you know, they can take loans. They've done that. Uh, and not necessarily that they have other sources of revenue. I think they would love 
80 or 85 in order to keep expanding their investments and, and keep having more money to just throw at these prestige things. But, you know, to, to be perfectly satisfied, I think, honestly, they're fine with 60. They can make it even at 40 or 50. And just to be clear on the record, Newcastle United is a lesser team. Is that right, Alan? Well, you know, I'm not really up on my uh, British that's, that's uh, I heard. football teams. That's what I heard there, TK. Ian Shepherdson, a Pantheon macroeconomics. While you were away, he was with oh, us. I tried. Offended. I'm pretty sure they tried, tried by Manchester United, right? Yeah. Well, Alan had to wait to come on because my soccer talk was so lame while you were going. Bramo really helped. Uh, she really and, elevated and, the and chat, I, did you she? Know, we, had, we had on uh, Ian Shepherdson and Pantheon, and we were tying it into Saudi Arabia's investment with the Newcastle United. And the one, was it fourth place? The wonderful fourth place finish? Secure Champions League football, had, yeah. It was great. But, you know, my question is to the two of you, we got another 15 minutes with Alan, I think. I'm kidding. I think we got 50 seconds. You and I got to talk <laughs> F1 racing and Aramco's investment there. And well, thank you. Alan, thank you. That was the brilliant. Cast, that was great. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Helene Becker joins us now on the the tragedy, which is domestic air travel. What I learned over the weekend, Elaine, in two instances, one with John Farrell, who actually uh, got on an airplane and got home, is international travel is actually pretty good, and domestic travel is an absolute train wreck. You drive out of Denver, and you and I remember the horrific Stapleton International Airport with the winds going sideways, and you were lucky you could land. This is ancient history. And you're going across the fields of Denver East, and there are those teepees in the distance, which was the huge success of Denver. DEN built a stunning 27 years ago. Why can't we build new airports in America? That's a great question, Tom. So the number one issue is space. We don't have enough space. Um, there's if you think about New York Airport, to the right you have one highway and to the left you have the New Jersey Turnpike. So there's no place to put a third parallel runway that would alleviate some of the problem. And then people don't want big airports in their backyard. The reason Denver was able to be built is because they bought so much of the land 
um, out there that you, you can have, I think there's four parallel runways now, and I think they can go up to six or eight. So they have the space for growth. Most of the rest of the country is built around cities, and you just don't have that. Within that, Scott Kirby of United Beleaguered, I believe he called in from Teterboro. We're trying to get him on the phone. But Scott Kirby of United made clear they will do less flights out of EWR. The companies you follow, is that the future, which is they're just going to have fewer flights? Yep, absolutely. We've been seeing that, Tom, as you know, for a couple of years now, for at least five or seven years. It's, it's going to be more seats per departure, so bigger aircraft, and it's going to be fewer departures per day. You, you remember, um, you and I talked about this. Newer, the, the Secretary of Transportation asked the four big airlines serving the New York area, Delta American United and JetBlue, to cut their summer capacity by 10% because air traffic control is understaffed. <clears throat> and you add that, you add to an understaffed air traffic control system, then you, you, you add to that winter or summer rather thunderstorms, and you have all the aircraft have to land, especially the ones coming in from overseas, and then nothing's taking off, so you, you get... Right. Um, you get those issues with, with air, aircraft that can't find gates. And well, the next thing you know, people are trapped. One final question on this insanity. And I actually want to talk Graham Dodd and Cottle uh, with you, actual adult securities analysis. Not so much who do you blame, but years ago, weren't there thunderstorms as well? <laughs> I mean, I don't get why thunderstorms are now a new thing. Right, exactly. So, so the biggest issue is when thunderstorms roll through the area, they're number one, unpredictable. So you don't really know where the cells are. You cannot have, because of all that metal, if there's lightning in the area, you cannot have your people on the ramp loading and unloading yeah. bags. They have to come in. You can't refuel. So they have to come in. So that's, to your point, that hasn't changed. But what has changed is the, the, entire system is just overtaxed and it goes back to years it goes back decades the system has been underinvested in and that's infrastructure it includes airports it includes <coughs> government right um, and it includes airlines let's talk securities analysis how buy hold sell Helene becker on say to pick out united airlines i did a log regression of united airlines back to 2008 where they cratered in the the great contraction yeah. great they could go up a hundred percent off that log, uh, uh, that log extrapolation out uh, uh, based pre-pandemic. Do you envision these airlines going up 50, 80, indeed a hundred percent in the near term? Uh, off the 2008 basis, um, yeah, there's no reason why they shouldn't. Maybe not a hundred percent, but certainly doubles. Um, from here, even from here. I mean, it's not going to be as robust as it would have been without the pandemic, because with the exception of Delta and I think Alaska Air, everybody else issued equity. So if we thought they could earn like United, take, for example, our best idea for 23, if we thought they could earn $3, $13 a share um, at the peak, a, a 10 multiple would be 130. But now you have to adjust for the increase, you know, in shares outstanding. So 13 becomes 12 and 130 becomes 120. And the stock's at 55-ish, 54. So no reason why I can't go up from here, especially given the fact that we think we're in a multi-year growth phase right. where, where you're going to have these issues. These are not issues that are going to be solved speedily if we're right. short. 3,000 air traffic controllers, and we only train five or 600 a year. That's a five or six year problem right there. So 
curious to what yeah. Scott will say. But, um, yeah, it's kind of problematic. Well, but, but, Elaine, this is important because I remember I treasure my conversation with Robert Crandall, uh, you know, American Airlines and all that he did and the history of aviation, the romance of what Helene Becker covers. Great. The bottom line is, have they found a new maturity of persistent cash flow or are the group of planes, are they still sharks where they boom, they bust? They boom, they bust. Is it a new regime? No. <laughs> no. I mean, I, I just, I don't know the answer to that specifically. I, I don't think I can, I would never have forecasted the pandemic, right? And I never, well, sure. in fact, I famously said that in one of my reports that you can't shut down the world. And it turned out we did and you could. It's just turning it back on. It's not that easy. And I think that's a big problem. We, we, Stopped figuring out how to make this work. And right. the fix is a multi-year fix. Um, but but in the interim, there will always be um, shocks to the system that will cause the, the earnings mm -hmm. to decline, um, will cause losses, will right. cause you know airlines to go bankrupt again. But I think in the main, because of all these infrastructure issues, a lack of OEM deliveries, that um, our good friend Kai Von Rumer, my colleague at TD Cowan, talk about all the time. Right. Um, the, the ATC system that we've talked about, you add all those issues together, plus you have tens, 10,000 at this point pilots retiring in this decade, and it's hard right. to replace them and so on. So by the time you're done with all of this, yeah, it's, it's really right. problematic um, you, because you, air travel is just going to get more expensive. One, real, real quick here, Helene, you get to breathe the same air as Kai Von Rumer. I mean, he's the giant <laughs> for all of us within yes. airline transportation security analysis. Is Kai Von Rumer optimistic on the future of Boeing, whether they're out of Seattle or Chicago, or I think they're moving to Washington this week? Is he still plus plus on BA? Yeah, I think so. I think he he it's one of his um one of his top picks. Okay, Helene. Yeah. Thank you so much. Helene Becker there with T.D. Cowan on an upper. Thanks to all your anecdotal comments over the weekend on domestic travel. And I've had a couple very worried messages about Bramo. And I'm really not sure which airport she's in. But, I, you know, it's, you know how it is. They set up the airports and there's no place to lay down because they don't want people laying down. And so, you know, she's got a fold-out thing where she puts it across the railings of the chair so at least the cherubs can sleep. But she's had her fair, fair share of the domestic travel as well. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. 
For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.